This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society. And we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. This evening we have a guest who... I have followed uh, in my work and unpacking understanding of Islam. Uh, But tonight will be a slightly different angle to that. We have Diana West joining us all the way from the States. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Peter. It's a great pleasure. It's wonderful, these live streams, because uh, many of them I get to talk to people who I know well, but sometimes I get to talk to people who I don't know so well with Claire, with... um, uh, Claire Lopez on the other week. We had Jack Possebic on, on on Monday. Uh, we have yourself on today. And those are three names who I have seen, read about and followed, but never spoken to. So it's good to have you on camera, face to face, maybe sometime, but certainly camera is the next best thing. So thank you so much yeah. for your time. Um, Dan, just to introduce you to our viewers, you are an award-winning journalist, author of Uh, three books that certainly I've seen. So The Red Threat, A Search for the Ideological Drivers Inside the Anti-Trump Conspiracy, which will be a great topic to go on, but will not go on this evening. American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. And that's the book that I've been going through, which actually sat on Lord Pearson's desk for many years. And I hadn't picked it up, followed your blogs, uh, probably on Gates of Vienna, I may have come across you yes, first. It could have been sure. Gates of, yeah. Um, but also the other book, The Death of the Grown-Up, How America's Arrested Development is Bringing Down Western Civilization. And you're also a joint author, along with 18 others, on Sharia, The Threat to America, a publication from Center of Security Policy. And you've been on many, I, I know you've been syndicated in, in the States for about 15 years. You're column was syndicated um, and you've been on uh, many uh, websites and blogs which many of our viewers will will know well obviously Gates of Vienna was one uh, that I knew you were on more recently the Daily Caller and Breitbart News American Spectator Epoch Times which I've been following closely very regularly recently um, and many other mainstream so the Wall Street Journal Washington Times and before we jump in and I take a breath, I'll put on the bottom that people can follow you on your blog, dianawest.net, and you update that regularly. They can also follow you on Gab, on at Real Deanna West, and on Patreon. And um, what was it? I, I read somewhere you got kicked off Twitter. What was it you said on Twitter that was naughty? Can you remember? Well, I'm sure everything was. I was waiting to be kicked off. It hadn't happened. I thought I'm really losing my touch. But frankly, I, I, my account was suspended without a word. So I didn't even get the naughty, naughty letter or anything. I just lost my access to, and you know, the account went locked wow. out. When, yeah. we Claire, when we had Claire Lopez on, I was going through her tweet over the last month to give people a flavor of what she talks about. And I said, Claire, how are you on Twitter? And she says, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I think I went off on the same day as James O'Keefe of Project Veritas yep. and Gateway Pundit. So it was a good day. <laughs> it was a good day to leave. You're in good company. Um, can I ask you, I've followed you for many years, I said, on on the, my work on Islam, but obviously American Betrayal, that's looking at the 
a Soviet threat, a threat from communism and infiltration. So that's uh, another area. And actually, we talked to uh, Jack about the CCP and their march through our institutions. This is coming out from a different angle. But uh, could I just ask you to take a couple of minutes first to introduce yourselves to our viewers? Oh, of course, I'd be happy to. I was born in Hollywood, California, and my father was a conservative screenwriter. Hollywood writer and author. So I grew up hearing loud arguments around our dinner table and my parents were always outnumbered. So I got very used to the conservative, uh, <laughs> the conservative stance in that regard. But um, years went by and I graduated from Yale. I had abandoned the history department because it was just too politicized and, mm -hmm. and left wing. And I was an English, a real English major. And um, I went to Washington DC uh, by way of New York to become a journalist in, this would have been in the eighties uh, during Ronald Reagan's second term. And I covered all kinds of things and ultimately became a columnist and opinion writer. And as you mentioned, I was uh, syndicated for about 15 years in newspapers across America. And I gradually also made the transition to writing books. And you've mentioned my books, which were all in, in some ways, I would say uh, The Death of the Grown Up and American Betrayal both were both attempts to understand how it was the West could not process Islam. Uh, both books, even though American Betrayal does go into uh, the subversion through communism, as but it begins with the subversion by Islam. So it, it actually is kind of a bridge book that allowed me to get a wider lens on what was happening to us in our decade post 9-11. So that's kind of the, the brief the brief overview. I've done television punditry as well, believe it or not, on CNN. And um, I'm just here in really, it's happy to speak with you. I'm, I'm actually, I'm smiling, but I'm, I'm in despair at our situation mm -hmm. now here in America. And, um, happy to go over how we really got here because it is it is a a big question and takes in Islam and takes in communism. It, it certainly has been a gloomy few months and I, I don't know how quickly it's going to improve, but um, that's, that's a, a Not, whole other side of how we can yeah. bring some positivity. But I am looking forward to um, Trump speaking at the, uh, was it the CC, uh, what, what do you call CPAC. it? Yeah, CPAC. So very uh, interesting. Yes. Over the weekend. So we'll that see. would be interesting. Uh, follow that closely. But it's this book, which is American Betrayal, The Secret Assault on Our Nation's Character. And you said you start at the beginning uh, looking at Islam, but then you go into a topic that many of our viewers may not necessarily have looked into, and that's the history of the infiltration, I guess, from communism from Russia. And you begin before the Second World War, and you go through a story, and you go through that. Um, so that's a, a topic that probably will be new. I think a lot of our viewers will support Hearts of Oak and follow us because of our concern on the clash with Islam and the freedoms we have in the West and in a number of other issues. So this is something which is quite different, but obviously they do link together in some ways. But you want to let us know what um, brought you to actually putting this book together. It's what maybe seven, eight years ago you wrote it. Uh, we'll yes. discuss the impact it had in, in a little bit. But yeah, what led you to, to write this book? 
Well, it was again, I had written The Death of the Grown Up, which is the second half is quite a lot about the concept of dimitude and how essentially our culture had taken us to this very childlike place, the death of the grown up, and it made us all too well suited to follow the directives, the submission of Islam. Um, that in is kind of an overview of what I was thinking after 9-11 and looking at this cultural book. And, and I was writing, uh, frequently I was writing editorials at the Washington Times in this period and as well of columns. So I was working within this field very closely, learning what we could not say. I said it anyway, you know, learning, um, you know, just in that same place so many of your, your viewers are familiar with. And I felt that the death of the grown-up was not an adequate metaphor. I felt I was missing something. It wasn't just enough to say we were being childish and couldn't have an adult conversation about Islam, which is the, the metaphor there. And I got very curious about this notion that we had nothing inside us to really stand up for ourselves. And I actually began American Betrayal under a different title. It was I sold it as the hollow center. And as I was doing the research, I realized, A, it wasn't hollow. Something was there. I was wrong. There was something there. And B, in this research thread that I, I followed, my question to myself, <laughs> who else do I talk to? My question to myself was, could I find a parallel in American history where we treated something the way we were treating Islam? In other words, uh, a, a, a concept, a movement, a threat that no one would have a, a, a rational conversation about that people were suppressed, that there was um, this effort to demonize truth tellers, all of the things we've, we experienced post 9-11, I wanted to find out, couldn't have started at 9-11. What mm. was the precedent? Could I find it? And at around the same time, I read a book, a new book, it was new in 2007, called Blacklisted by History. And it was essentially a... a um, a, a revisionist history of the, the most maligned man in American history, namely Senator Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. And this book was written by M. Stanton Evans, who uh, sadly uh, died a couple of years ago, but he was a fantastic journalist and a fantastic detective. And he had put together this amazing archive of primary sources that essentially flipped everything that I vaguely knew, I didn't know that much about McCarthy. I just knew I was supposed to hate him and I suspected that I shouldn't, but I didn't know anything. He of course was known as the great red hunter responsible for the so-called red scare. He was supposed to have harmed all these innocent people. He was the demon dog of American politics and people still talk about McCarthyism. And I'm sure your viewers know that word even in Britain. And anyway, I was so knocked out by what Stan Evans had done in this book with this one man that I started thinking, is this a place to look in the history of communism in America? Well, it couldn't have started with Joseph McCarthy. It had to go back for, further still. And so one thing led me to another, and I found that there were precursors in the American Congress to McCarthy as well, a man named Martin Dyes um, in the 1930s, for example. And I'm just starting to dig and dig and dig. And I get to a place that I think really makes sense to begin. And it was in the Franklin Roosevelt administration, one of the first things he did as president was in 1933, was he reversed the policy of four presidents before him and six secretaries of state to normalize relations with the Soviet Union, then under Joseph Stalin. And what I learned about that 
how it was based on a promise to stop trying to subvert America, basically. They, the the mm. Soviets promised in exchange for this extremely important diplomatic recognition and normalization of relations, they promised to stop trying to overthrow our country. And yet it was going on at the time. And as I was learning and, and digging and finding all these, these fascinating stories, it ramped up right inside the Franklin Roosevelt itself from that day forward. And so you had this, this incredible um, hypocrisy enshrined in our, our diplomatic uh, uh, agenda that I argue actually becomes a very important point for America in terms of essentially abandoning a moral compass. And the, the advent of moral relativism and, and all kinds of state engineered hypocrisies and lies. And this becomes sort of a narrative of big lies. So the book is very ambitious and it takes in a very broad canvas, much more so than the McCarthy book that I was so inspired by, but that was that had to have been done first. And I was able to go on from there and write a broader rewrite of American history. I mean, it sounds fairly um, arrogant to say I wrote a rewrite of American history, but <laughs> it was all there. And what I really was doing was uncovering things that had been suppressed. And so much of what we have experienced in our time post 9-11 is this seizure of narrative, the suppression of facts, this demonization of truth tellers. And what I found in American Betrayal was this same history writ larger, deeper, wider, longer, certainly, that just the parallels were so amazing. I mean, I'm sure many of your viewers, I'm sure you have as well, been called an Islamophobe. Oh, yes. And it's supposed to stop the conversation and all the rest. Well, I found the exact same dynamics going on with people who are called red baiters, for example. Mm. I was called a red baiter even, and I didn't even know what it was. This was in 2008, I think it was, talking about the election in America, Barack Obama. But I, this, this is what was going on in our past, and I realized it was a very important piece of even understanding our present. And since that time, it is I think that communism globalism, aggressivism, the collective, I think has even superseded, at least in America, has even superseded what we were enduring in that decade after 9-11. We are much more subject to the strictures of communism at this point than Islam, even though that remains the overlap. Um, but, you know, that's sort of my, my that's my pitch here on, on sort of how I got from A to B. Um, and uh, the story continues. It was, I find it very interesting that at the beginning you talk about uh, FDR taking on a Soviet first policy and then in, into the war. I yes. think the story you gave was, and I, again, it's interesting because you read it and you think, that's different from what I learned. <laughs> so need to go back. It's different from what I learned, <laughs> yes. But then I understand that through uh, studying Islam, and that was all. Everything you've learned is wrong, and you have to, to relearn it and see things differently. So this is another... Uh, another view of the world. Uh, but you talked about that Soviet first policy of how, I think it was there were aircraft going to be sent to Singapore to defend Singapore, and that was diverted. And then Singapore fell soon after. Um, yes. And you realize that there are um, little pieces of history, little decisions, which actually can have big consequences. Um, and you talked about that um, um, Soviet first policy actually meant even above 
what the US themselves domestically got at, at certain times. So yeah, it was certainly quite a, an eye opener when I read that. Well, it was very interesting. I mean, that's just that's just that's just one piece of it. The the planes mm. for Singapore, a very important piece for Singapore. But as you say, you know, a, a seemingly small uh, step in a large uh, scene of action. But you know, think about it. Um, uh, there, that Soviet first policy also was was very instrumental in the decision uh, by the Roosevelt administration not to rescue American troops in the Philippines. Mm. Which had which were under under siege yeah. right after Pearl Harbor as well. And what's interesting, the reason I bring that particular piece up is that the British, coming to Washington for their first meeting with Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, of course, uh, were shocked. <laughs> they yeah. they fully expected uh, a re a re un, a rethinking of the American strategy as they had understood it before the attack on Pearl Harbor, and they fully understood that that made a lot of sense because we had an army who needed rescue. And yet that was that was not the policy. It was how can we save Joseph Stalin, not how can we save MacArthur's army. So these were very shocking things for me uh, to come to. I My father was a veteran of World War II. He, he uh, was part of the D-Day invasion. He walked ashore at Omaha Beach on D-Day plus three and ended up in his uh, real fighting began at the Battle of San Lo, which uh, some of your viewers may may know about, and he fought across Northern Europe. But I, I had a compl- I had the the traditional understanding of the way the war was won, the way the war was fought, the way America and and, and Britain uh, fought together, and this aspect of infiltration of the Roosevelt administration and and the Churchill government and and the Japanese government and the German government. I mean, this was a fascinating complex, brilliant strategy of subversion that was run by by the Soviet Union um, figures into many, many plans and things that were done um, as as war strategy. I mean, at a certain point, you have to say, well, if Franklin Roosevelt's top advisor on China or or Germany or what have you is a Soviet agent, (laughs) you have to start questioning the decisions that were made in terms of who benefited, who was supposed to benefit. And that's a number of things in the book are, are kind of revisiting a number of decisions made during the war, um, that particular war, World War II, that um, really look differently once you start kind of unmasking who these personnel really were. And what, what was interesting to me, because I did not set out to write such a book, um, I would not really presume to set out to write such a book. But what I realized is that there really was not such a book. In other words, mm-hmm. there's a lot of material, a lot, there's a whole archive on Soviet KGB decryptions. Yeah. Um, there's a whole, well, there's a massive world of books on World War II alone. And what I learned in looking at these books is they don't marry. They don't ever put them together. There was nobody doing this in a systematic fashion of saying, you can't just tell one story, a war story or a diplomatic story or biography separate from the input of this Soviet intelligence um, machine that had activated so many important people in very key roles. And so what I tried to do essentially with that book was knit together the intelligence history which was sort of in a pile over here mm. with the um, history, history and biography and, and diplomacy and so on. 
and just say, well, what do you do if you put them together? And you get a very dark story. Um, it's a very disturbing story. And you start seeing you start seeing people come off statues and, and pedestals. And you start seeing some other people, new, new heroes emerge, people who were aware of this along the way or had at least a piece of it, because, of course, it's hard to see it all if you're living it. Um, but it was a fascinating and, and horrifying experience to do this, this research, which, um, you know, had, had just not been put together in quite this way, certainly not in, in contemporary times. It's interesting to see that step because often commentators who look at Islam and speak out about the, that clash we face in our world, um, because that is such a huge issue and because of the backlash uh, that and because of the work that has to be done to help people understand uh, that what they have learned is wrong uh, and it is not necessarily the religion of peace they've been led to believe. But that's often a, such a huge area. Um, but yeah, you took the step from there onto, onto communism, which seems to be quite separate. So what, what kind of took you to that step? Well, again, it was it was more, you know, my interest in Islam was not about Islam. I, I couldn't be more bored with Islam per se. I mm. My fascination was dimitude. My fascination was the impact of Islam on the Western mind. So it was pretty natural for me when I was, as I mentioned to you, was trying to understand, did we have a precedent for acting so insanely <laughs> in the face of a mortal ideological threat? That, again, I was looking at behavior yeah. not matching, you know, a religion. Well, you can make an argument that communism is like a religion, certainly uh, a, a very, you know, I, I hard ideological yeah. um, uh, regimen and agenda. So there are definite similarities. There's similarities in uh, the collectivism. There's similarities in the speech controls and the mind controls. There are a lot of similarities between the two uh, um, ideologies, but I was always, again, more interested in how Westerners, Americans, British, etc., were behaving and and being subverted from within, boring from within. We talked so much about it in the post 9/11 period as we watched uh, different kinds of Muslim infiltration, subversion, the twisting of our education system, our law, Sharia. I mean, I'd been you know steeped in this stuff, so it was quite natural to see in some ways the the granddaddy of this subversion um certainly in the western experience being communism marxism and socialism mm. and all the variants i mean even the, the there's so many similarities even the many schools of islam you can look at all the many schools of communism all the different names the things that can the different groups there are different groups in both um ideologies the the sort of um Many, many similes between the two, which I does account for their often political union, um, you know, whether it's forming a cordon sanitaire against Flam's Belong or something, you know, whatever it is, you do see the commonality there against the, the nation state, against the, um, the, the rule of law, not ideology. So it, it, there were just, it was just an easy fit. And then there's something else that I, I think would be interesting to your viewers to discuss, which I, I haven't resolved myself. But when you get to uh, the formation of Al-Qaeda and you have the uh, dissident uh, Litvinenko, who died that horrible death in Britain mm. of polonium poisoning, 
one of his um, revelations, one of the things he brought to us that he said was true, was the truth from his days inside Russian intelligence was that Zawahiri, who now leads or whatever Al-Qaeda is at this point, but was one number two under Osama bin Laden at the time of 9-11, Zawahiri was trained by Russian intelligence and dropped into Afghanistan. Well, that's, that's quite a confluence of Russia and Islam. That's an important piece of this. You can go back to the 1960s and 70s, start seeing, uh, we didn't call it Islamic hijacking, it was mostly Palestinian hijacking. Mm. But you see the, the red network there at work in terms of the different terror groups that included the Arabs, the Palestinians. We didn't we don't, I don't even know if we ever used the word Muslim back in those days, but you know, you had the the you know Bader Meinhof gang, and you had the IRA, and you had Gaddafi, and you had the PLO. Well, this was the constellation of groups that the Soviet Union had activated. So there's a continuity here that we can see between Islam and the center of communism as a as a nation at that time, um, Soviet Union. So destabilizing ideologies have a history together. That is something we should we should remember, and I do write about that as well in American Betrayal because the book does come forward in time, and I I was quite uh, impressed with the there was a book by a, a journalist named Claire Sterling called The Red Network I believe it's called The Red Network that was very influential in the first Reagan administration um, in terms of trying to set a hard line against this kind of terrorism that she documented was being supported by the Soviet Union. And that was something that was not known, or if it was known, it was poo-pooed, but this was the first time we see that actually kind of weaponized in, in the, the, the uh, you know, political power. So these these things kind of weave in and out. Um, there, there are a lot of commonalities. And uh, I think as with any totalitarian system, they're going to find form alliances is they're going to be able to work together. And there's another, another piece of it, which is the uh, Russian historian Suvorov, who lives in England. Uh, he has talked about um, the way the Red Terror would come to the West, and it would start with a Gray Terror that would be hard to, hard to really nail down in terms of who was supporting it. So, and then it would be... It, followed by the Red Terror, and there would be no doubt it was coming out of the communist world. And so that's an interesting paradigm to think about in terms of what Litvinenko was telling us. Um, you know, again, these are sort of theories out there, they're ideas. Uh, we don't see governments or investigative committees actually trying to nail this down. So it's left to us to kind of work through them and, and think about them. But I think there's certainly great common um, common goals here in terms of defeating the West, defeating Christendom, you know, all of, all of what you talk about a lot, I'm sure, uh, Western civilization and the rest. And um, so it, it was kind of a natural move for me, I think, to find this wealth of information that seemed to pre-figure pre, uh, what I had experienced as a journalist trying to write sensibly, just sensibly, honestly, about Islam starting on literally uh, November 11th, uh, September 11th or 12th of 2001, when I was trying to write editorials and columns at the time in Washington. So um, it was a great education for me. It was a horrifying education. It seemed it was much worse because just dealing with Islam was bad enough, but I didn't know that we had this extent of subversion of our institutions 
coming into this Islamic wave. Um, I used to think that Islam actually kind of followed communism, as in communism had shot through its its power, and now we were watching the rise of Islam. I actually don't believe that anymore. I think that the left was always, always moving forward here um, and, and wider in the West, um, and that Islam in some, I feel, I don't know how any you feel or your viewers feel, I sometimes feel uh, it was almost distracting in the sense that it took my eye off the ball for so long in terms of yeah. this incredible domestic subversion. We we come into 2008 with Barack Obama and people are still saying we won the Cold War, we being the West, and we've got all the, uh, we've got no opposition to socialized medicine. Marxism reigns on every college yeah. campus. That was kind of when I realized that we had not won the Cold War. This was another one of these narratives. And in American Betrayal, I take it even further. I, I don't think we won World War II either in the sense that look at the map. I think you always have to go through, look aside for, or stop listening to the, the conventional wisdom and look at the map. What's the power? What is the, the explosion of, 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 of territory and, 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 and ideology after World War II? It's communism. It's mm. first the Soviet Union, which is gigantic and now has swallowed up half of Europe and is threatening the rest. And then, of course, is China. A few years later, we have communist China, which was, again, the communists inside the American government were instrumental in orchestrating that. So who wins? Who was really effective? Were our governments cat's paws? I mean, these are some of the really horrible questions I'm asking and trying to research in American Betrayal. And the repercussions are in the newspapers today. I mean, it's an incredible thing. None of this is ancient history. Mm. It's all living today. But unfortunately, well, tragically, our education systems have forgotten the whole thing if they ever knew it or suppressed it or are telling lies. And so this is kind of this is kind of the static that trying to bring this story forward to 2021 now brings you know to you brings to the table there is great reluctance to face these facts because you do have to throw out so much of what we believe. Mm, you're absolutely. Can I there are loads of things I can pick you up on but there's what I wanted to ask you about the backlash you'd faced when you wrote American Terror. I remember reading about uh, uh, there was a lot of criticism, a wall of criticism from different places. But can I just one just short, quick question? Uh, you mentioned about being a journalist after 9 11. What, what was that like? Trying to make sense uh, with most of the public, they're trying to make sense of it, but that's private. That's either conversations in your head or within a small group. But that conversation with you had to be public. So how was that over that couple of weeks, I guess, after it, trying to write about that and make sense? Well, that's an interesting... No one's ever asked me that question before. Thank you. Um, well, it was, you know, the the shock. I was, I was living outside of New York City at the time, mm. and uh, people in our in our town worked in the city, and, and um, I, you know... I knew I had a college friend who had died in uh, one of the towers. And so, you know, it was very, very close, the whole mm. thing. Um, so the shock, um, there was a tremendous, I will say there was a tremendous outpouring of warmth in among Americans at the time. And we were very aware of the warmth coming to us from the rest of the world. It was such a shocking moment. 
but actually trying to put the pieces together in writing, you know, that first editorial, um, I, I didn't know a thing about Islam. And I drove myself to the local bookstore, which had already pretty much been ransacked. And I picked up a really bad copy, a real apologetic copy of the Quran, which I learned later. But I also picked up, I there was a book there by Ibn Warak, Why I'm Not a Muslim, that was among my first books. Boy, was I lucky. So I had, I probably had a Karen Armstrong apologetic and a bad career, but I had even Warwick. And um, I also had another author, Paul Fragosi. So anyway, I was trying to sort of, but but I didn't, I didn't necessarily start reading them on you know, September 12th. You know, you're trying to pull this stuff together. And I remember thinking, Paul Johnson will know. I'll find something in Paul Johnson. So I was looking and I found a line from him where he talked about it being a, a you know, a medieval I don't know if he used the word barbaric, but you know, a medieval, harsh, difficult, impossible religion, something like that. So I thought, oh, okay, that's where we're going here. Let's go see if we can understand it better from that. But it took a very long time because the apologetics were so intense on every television station. Um, the the first columns that seemed to have any sense to them were were not not mine, but I was writing editorials were. Um, taken down. I remember a couple of columnists I know who actually were reprimanded for writing anything particular, and they didn't know really what they were saying anyway. So I would say that the hand was coming down very hard, particularly on September 12th, George Bush, our president, uh, told us Islam was a religion of peace. And that was a lie. And we have been, you know, we were suffering from that ever since. So we were kind of working through this and I was just thinking, it's not a religion of peace. I'm looking at television, it's not a religion of peace. So it was just a time of great confusion, um, emotion. Um, and, you know, everything really went downhill from there because after people put their flags away and we had whitewashes at the 9-11 commission and we had, uh, you know, this, this incredible uh, censorship on on discussion it, it it was it was well it was a precursor to what we're getting now I mean it's even worse now the censorship so we thought that you know free speech at that point was really all about Islam and I uh, uh, worked with Lars Hedegaard yep. at the uh, International Free Press Society also Ingrid Karkovist you yep. mentioned earlier to me um, uh, you know, we, we were all about the getting the cartoons published, the Danish cartoons. So, I mean, this was that period. Um, and now there is no free speech really about anything when you get into our public square, which these days is big tech. It wasn't back then. We had a more traditional media still. So it's... Um, it was a mess, really. And and it never it never really righted itself or when... It did. It was too late. It was too late for policymaking. Mm. It was too late for the mistakes. So I think this is actually strategy with all of these, um, all of these uh, efforts to censor us. If they can just hold the door on us long enough, the policy is made, the war is fought, the waste is there, the, the lives are lost. And then the truth can kind of filter out after the battlefield is cold. So that is what you see quite often in all of these historical situations, and I think I think we live through that as well. It, it's been interesting because I always thought that Islam was the one you couldn't talk about, but we got censored a few weeks ago for talking about COVID and having a, <laughs> yes. a different conversation in the lockdowns. So we got a one-week ban for that, but of course, it's talking about anything on the LGBT issue and transit. It's actually not just Islam; it's now becoming everything you can no longer talk about. 
And right. so it's, yeah, it's becoming worse and worse. I wish we had back to the days where it was just Islam. Good old Islam to have, have censorship on. But can I, you, huge backlash when you wrote American yeah. Betrayal. So what was that like? I, I get that's not what you're expecting. Although you are putting out a book on history that is different to what majority of people understand. So um, you are rewriting people's understanding of, of what actually had happened. So it was a, a quite a, a large responsibility upon you, actually, when, when you put that out. But what, what was the backlash and were you expecting it? Um, well, I will say that the backlash came later, that the book enjoyed enormous success and appreciation from readers mm. because uh, the book is the book has about a thousand endnotes, so oh, everyone can research it for themselves. Um, and I think that the way the book is written, the book is written the only way I knew how, which was essentially to take a reader down the same road I went. Because again, I wasn't setting out to do this book at all. Mm. And one thing really did lead to another. So when I was structuring it, it was one thing leads to another to another. So that a reader could experience the shocks as I experienced them. And then the perception, I, I explain my perception. And of course, they're free to, you know, obviously free to reject or argue with it. Um, but it, it was a destabilize. It is a destabilizing book. It still is because it does flip so much of what we understand about who we are and what we did and what we did to this world. So it's a hard book to read in that sense. Um, the backlash, the backlash was essentially a corrective action to try to get us back to the false narrative. Mm. And I was not expecting it from the right, but as Vladimir Bukowski said, Vladimir Bukowski wrote two very uh, uh, eloquent, of course, everything he wrote was eloquent, but two very mm. amazing essays about uh, the book and the controversy. And, you know, as he said, you know, the left knows better. The left knows better than to actually attract attention to something. And he felt that the right wasn't really, they should have let it, just let it go. Uh, but the people who attacked it did not wish this, um, this reckoning to take place, I, I maintain, and wanted the narrative to remain that everything was fine until about 1965. Mm. And that's when the revolution begins. Whereas the revolution didn't stop from at least 1917 forward, beginning in Moscow. Um, the reason that's important is that the only way you can fight a subversion is to understand it completely. And if you don't understand how, how far gone your institutions are and how long it's been going on, you are quite blind and helpless as to dealing with it. And if you don't know who to trust in history, you're not going to know who to trust in, in the current time. Um, I will say just in terms of just trying to encapsulate a multi-year, uh, multi-event <laughs> backlash <laughs> or assault, really, I did not have to retract a single thing. I was not cut out on any fact. Mm. I was not cut out on any mistake. It was this uh, notion. In fact, the, the majority of the, of the attacks actually ascribed to me things I never wrote. So I was constantly writing rebuttals, not oh. in my book was the word, I, a phrase I used countless times. It would literally ascribe to me crazy things, things that weren't in the book, to the point of actually say, telling a reader that, yes, on page something, this is there. And it wasn't. So I would actually have to write, no, it's not on page 253. It's not anywhere in the book. So 
it was really pretty crazy making, but I think the point was they were there to use their positions as authorities to um, uh, essentially, essentially confuse people and drive them away from the book and more importantly, the subject. Mm. The idea of going back in time and reworking our understanding of how we got here was really the main goal here to make the whole subject of subversion in America toxic and radioactive and woe to the researcher or writer who wants to go into that. Look what happened to her. Cause I would say, you know, now we talk about canceling all the time. This was an effort to cancel me. And in fact, one man who became a very good friend of mine, uh, I did not know him before this. He actually, I got to know him because he was watching what was happening to me and he thought it was so darn Soviet. Mm. And he was saying to me, you know, they're not, they're not arguing with your book. They're trying to destroy your reputation for the future. So this, I hadn't even thought of that. This is very sinister stuff. So given the fact that it was a matter of refuting lies about me or my material and that I did not have to retract anything, I'm happy to correct a mistake. I mean, that's really not a big deal, but I didn't have to. And it was all about this sense that we could not for example, take Franklin Roosevelt off of his pedestal, and we could not look at what Joseph McCarthy did to try to take communists out of the U.S. government, people loyal to Joseph Stalin trying to overthrow our government on the taxpayer dime, that we could not ex accept that as actually something every elected official should be doing. So it was sort of a, a way of not changing the lodestars, really, of our understanding of the past. America reveres FDR. And they loathe Joseph McCarthy. And while my story and American Betrayal and our history is more complicated than that, that is sort of a good way of understanding who comes down and who goes up and who is vindicated in our past, mm. the anti-communists, who, is, um, who is, is to be spurned as we look in our past. It's all, the, all of the people who are the conventional icons. So it is destabilizing, but it's also, I find it extremely um, bracing and inspiring because the, we have genuine heroes in our past, and I'm sure you have them in Britain as well, who stood up to this gang and lost everything. And they got run over by history. And I was sort of there trying to kind of prop them up again, pull them up. For example, um, a man named George Racy Jordan, who saw that, Harry Hopkins, who was Franklin Roosevelt's top aide, was literally flouting the embargo in America on uranium exports mm. as we were developing the nuclear bomb to get it to Moscow. And this is a person in our history. It's, his story has been vetted by FBI investigators, Congress. This is someone lost in our history. I was very happy, for example, to write about a man like that who was telling the truth and was absolutely demonized. If you ever hear about him in history, he's usually demonized. But I found out that he was telling the truth as far as we could establish it. And what he didn't, what we couldn't literally establish, for example, a phone call with Harry Hopkins, fine, whether it's true or not, whether we can establish it or not, everything else checked out. So that's the kind of story I was, I was resurrecting mm. and finding these truth tellers, I called them in our past. And I find them very exciting. And a great pantheon that we really need to be inspired today because we are, we are in such dire straits today. And, um, you know, we're fairly demoralized at this point to tell you the truth, but you know, this, this has happened before, uh, maybe never on the scale, I would say, but it is the same effort to rewrite events, 
January 6th at our Capitol, November 3rd, our presidential election to rewrite them in the media and the mainstream so that they are lost to us. And it's the same thing I was looking at in Islam. It's the same thing I was looking at in American Betrayal. So we all have to get very wise to this kind of thing and really do the digging. Absolutely. And Lundon, you've um, some, uh, was it uh, Arthur T. Hi, Dana. Thank you for all your work. Uh, Christy Negu, Dana West has published some really eye-catching books and well-researched material. Uh, so there are a lot of, uh, Milton1079 says, superb guest. Uh, we, Thank you. We, we, we do our best. So yes. Um, so there are lots of, but, um, and can I also just put this up uh, maybe well, less than 10 minutes to go um of this is where people can follow you uh, on your uh, on your blog site on patreon and also on gab so i encourage people to go and have a look at those and um, certainly i go to your blog quite a lot and it's very interesting so people go to that but can i ask you just as we're coming near close it's interesting the comparison between the communist march from russia and the communist march from china and in to most of us in the public it looks very different approaches under under russia it was infiltration but there seemed to be this continued tension whether it was the space race or the arms race or um and you had a a physical barrier down the middle of of europe so you seem to have that tension of course that ronald reagan uh really pushed that and opened that up to the American eyes. Um, so that's how I see it as a member of the public. But then if you look at the communist infiltration from China, uh, again, you can uh, we have infiltration, and we've seen that over the last two weeks, of uh, the massive infiltration in our universities with lectures and um, infiltration into our research development. Um, but that seems to have happened with open arms from the West. There doesn't seem to be this tension. And there seems to be a concern of China, but then we want to trade with China. We want to embrace China. We want Chinese students to come and be educated here and have access to research. And so it's very different, I guess, relationship, or it seems to be. Um, oh, I, my camera's frozen. Let me change my camera. Uh, a, a, um, yeah, so I'll talk while I change my battery. So just a very different approach where it's a very friendly yeah. one. Um, but, yeah, so I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think that the periods of tension that you re you referenced were so cyclical, and the tensions would be followed by periods of detente, peaceful coexistence. That was another word for detente. Um, going back to the 1920s, the new economic policy of, of Lenin, which had a lot of trade um, and, and financial connections to the West. So I think that it was consistently open arms and then the occasional um, the occasional hardliner or comparative hardliner. But I don't I, I think that it's 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 um, important to remember it wasn't just Ronald Reagan in 1981. It was all kinds of appeasement and trade. I mean, the the West starting in 1917 was building up the Soviet economy. And every time there was a thaw of some kind, it was generally an appeal to the West to get uh, credits, loans that would be forgiven, etc. So I think that the similarities are still there to the open arm approach to China, which of course, much of it is money 
And also this notion that we don't have enemies. We don't have enemy ideologies. Our enemy cannot be Islam. Our enemy cannot be communism. We have no enemies. We have no beliefs. We have no nothing. So a lot of this is this ideological battle, I think, to disarm us. And I would say that the thing that I've sort of consistently glues all of this together, I didn't mention this before, probably is the concept of disinformation, mm. which is something that we are all subject to all the time. And there are great, brilliant practitioners of it that really do go back to Soviet days. Um, but the Chinese are no slouches. I mean, the Chinese are part of it, part and parcel of it too. Our media is infiltrated, but so was our media back in the day. It was in, infiltrated by communists. So if we're infiltrated by various people who are on the shake from China, if they're not literally Chinese, I mean, you see the similarities. So I think it's important to remember the Cold War wasn't one thing and it wasn't just Ronald Reagan at the wall. It was, it was mostly appeasement, frankly. Um, so we do have parallels there. And I would say my own hunch is that as China is so obnoxiously um, aggressive, I think that that in a way is a distraction from what continues to go on with Russia. And I would just mention a couple of things. America was actually invaded cyber wise by Russia, our nuclear program or department, if you will, was breached for some seven months that was recently discovered. And it's like the biggest non-story around. They were running around and we don't exactly, certainly the public doesn't exactly know what they were doing, but this is a very big deal. We also have an arms race underway that nobody covers. Hillary Clinton, uh, as Secretary of State under Barack Obama, the two of them oversaw this massive tech transfer, high tech transfer from Amer mostly, but not entirely American companies, high tech companies to Russia in a program called Skolkovo, which was to be a Silicon Valley type city outside of Moscow. It exists. Many of those people, many of those companies, I should say, were also donors to the famous or infamous Clinton Foundation. Mm. This was going on in the very recently, um, obviously, in the Barack Obama administration. One of the things that transferred was technology supposed to be civil, well, dual use, let's say, but civilian, but let's say the military is able to use it, that has become Russia's hypersonic missile technology. Yeah. This came about under Barack Obama. It is never spoken about, but now Russia and China both have a great edge over the United States in hypersonic missile technology, which if you Google it, you will see all kinds of scary things about that. So yes, while we're all focused on China, it's a little bit like look over there because all this stuff is still going on with Russia. Our uranium sale, you know, our American uranium largely purchased by, by uh, Putin under the Barack Obama administration, you know, all of that story, that corruption that never came to be processed. So I'm just quickly just sort of setting a few um, pieces of the pie that I think is still Russian with all of this. And and I, I think certainly that um, personally, my own feeling that a lot of the rolling coup d'etat against mm -hmm. President Trump was certainly orchestrated by people who have very strong Russian roots, Soviet roots in terms of mentors, relationships, um, uh, sympathies going back to their early days. Certainly Joe Biden goes back into that period when he was very big on um, arms control, when that was the big Soviet policy. His chief of staff comes from Al Gore's world. Al Gore was very famously a scion of a family that was very close to Armin Hammer, who was a Soviet 
asset. I mean, so you, you, I don't think you can just bifurcate everything and just say it's all China, which a lot of commentators want to do, which makes me also wonder why, mm. you know, we, we can't just be blinded again and again. And we often are. And some people are doing it, you know, because they don't think about it. And some people I think are doing it because they want to do it. They want to, they want to, they don't, you know, they may be switching, switch hitting there. Yeah. So it's, it's complicated, but you have to keep your eyes open because the facts are there and it just isn't mm. dependent on what media organization is saying, look at China. <laughs> so Absolutely. I'm knowing that we've just passed 50 minutes, so I will. Can I just say, uh, just for just one minute question, uh, I opened up with uh, one who had Jack Possible gone and asked him uh, what the hell's happening in America. <laughs> he, he obviously works in D.C. and he sees um, all the, the tensions there. And he was late for a live stream because it took him so long to actually get past all the barricades. Uh, we don't see that here, though. And the Kitty so Hopkins sorry. has been out there and yeah. filmed that for a, a U.K. audience. But um, just just a minute or so, what what are your thoughts on <laughs> the chaos? Uh, that's a whole live stream, but just, just your yeah. thoughts on what's happening yeah. over there. Well, I think a lot of people understand this, but most people don't say it. I think that America uh, was subject to a coup. Yeah. Um, our election was stolen from the people. Our right to self-determination was taken from us. I looked at much of the evidence. I've read through affidavits. I've watched numerous hearings. I've looked at some of the tremendously... Um, detailed reports by, for example, Peter Navarro. Mm. Um, and I've concluded that election fraud took place on such a scale as to certainly seem to have turned the election in key counties that flipped key states. But even if you haven't done that, you we all know that counting of votes stopped in five yep. states that Donald Trump was winning in on election night. That's unprecedented there's something wrong there, even before you start looking at all the various multivarious kinds of fraud. So our courts are subverted. Our Congress is subverted. Our vice president, former Pence, is, in my view, a traitor. Yeah. Um, and we we lost our democracy on November 3rd. Um, so I don't know how to put it more plainly than that. But we are now in a post-democratic situation with the regime. I don't believe Biden and Harris have anything to do with the direction of it there. We don't know who really is clearly Biden mm. is demented and Harris mm. is a non-entity. So they are essentially warming seats when they are around and something else, someone else, some group else, I don't know if they're foreign or domestic or both are running America. But when you actually look at what America mm. is doing under this regime, it is things to destroy us. And I'll just give you one. Donald Trump made us energy independent and indeed a great exporter. We are now heading back to energy dependency. And we also made an order that China is now permitted to sell parts for our grid. <laughs> what more do you need to know? Who benefits the American people? I think not. So we're in a real we're in a real jam because we don't have uh, we don't have legal redress at this point. Mm. Our Supreme Court yep. just today yep. threw out everything. Yeah, yeah, I, I saw listen. that. Yeah, so. Um, and, That's and it is, really yeah. America. Talk about American betrayal, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> we will finish on that because that conversation <laughs> could go on a long time and I would like to go on a long time, but uh, we'll, we'll do that another live stream. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofvoke.org. Thank you for listening.